Welcome to The Rate Debate, a lively discussion from the champions of Australian fixed income, featuring Darren Langer and Chris Rands from Nico Asset Management. Hello and welcome to Episode 9 of The Rate Debate. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Darren Langer, Head of Australian Fixed Income at Nico Asset Management, and joining me in the virtual fixed income bunker again is my co-portfolio manager, Chris Rands. Hi, everyone. As we go to where, it's Tuesday the 1st of September and the RBA has just met. Today's statement was underwhelming, even by the past RBA standards, with little change other than extending and increasing the bank's funding arrangement with the RBA to June 2021. This, at least uh, on the margin, should help um, reduce some of the chatter amongst economists that's been recently floating around about higher mortgage rates to help banks' profitability. Um, it's highly unlikely that the banks would uh, raise interest rates while they're basically being funded by the government. However, apart from that, it really seems the RBA is glass half full central bank, um, choosing to sit by and watch while other central banks act more decisively. We have seen the currency rise from 55 cents to 74 cents in the last five months, which doesn't help our competitiveness, and our rates are now some 40 basis points higher than our neighbours in New Zealand. While the RBA is right that markets are functioning well, I still question why they think it's right for the government to borrow at over 1% for 10 years and then lend to the banking system at quarter of a percent. When offshore, when offshore curves suggest that our 10-year rates could be some 30 to 40 basis points lower if the RBA would target the longer end of the curve rather than chip away at the front end, which they have spent some 50 or $60 billion so far to do to move three-year rates a matter of a few basis points. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, so I, I obviously have the the same feeling that it's it's interesting what they're doing. There, there seems to be a number of things kind of moving against them, I think, at the moment. The idea that you're giving cheap funding to the banking sector when if you listen to Phillips Lowe's testimony just a couple of weeks ago, he said that the state governments are the ones that are going to have to start spending more to help growth. You know, we're not really seeing any accommodation or easing coming for them. It's all just being passed on to the banking sector. And as you said, the, the currency is starting to move higher. One of the, the thoughts sitting in my head over the past couple of days is a lot of the spending that we're doing at the moment is coming online. If the Aussie hits 80 cents, it's going to be far easier to do that spending offshore than locally. So even that kind of in the current environment might end up hurting more than it normally would simply because that spending is going to end up somewhere else. Particularly given that the external sector has been one of the positives for us in that because we're not traveling overseas as much, we're actually spending more money locally and it's actually helping the economy recover faster than perhaps might have been the case. So it does seem a little strange that the RBA want the currency to continue to rise. Yeah, and no, I, th- I think if you just look at the the short term chart, you know you're starting to get back to early 2018 levels, which is when the RBA was thinking they're going to be hiking rates of in terms of the currency was last this high. So it is starting to I think at least raise the issue that they're going to have to start thinking about it, and, and that probably leads I guess into the, the the big question that I've been kind of tossing around in my head. Over the past few weeks, we've seen that the RBAs started to change their narrative a little bit. They've they've told us that while negative rates are extremely unlikely, that they're not off the table. So that's a bit of new information that we hadn't seen before. And they've also told us that there could be a new bond buying program if required. So would you think that these comments are just them posturing or there is actually a shift going on with their narrative? Until today, I, I thought there may have been a shift uh, coming in the narrative, but they, they kind of shut that down uh, by saying very little. Maybe maybe the minutes will uh, give us a little bit more detail, but, you know, as I said, it really just looks like um, they're 
banking on the fact that, yes, the outlook is a little bit rosier than perhaps what they thought it would be and that they don't really need to do a lot more. But given the amount of funding that still has to be done by the government in particular, the fact that we're paying way over the top compared with other countries, the currency is going against us as well. It just seems to be putting us in a, in a much more uncompetitive position than we really should need. Well, sorry, than we really need to be in. I've obviously been anxiously waiting for them to to sound a bit more dovish than they have been. So, you know, perhaps I'm reading in a little bit more than potentially I should, especially when you look at today's statement. But I, I think the timing of their actions does speak to them potentially being ready to do more. So if you look at their QE policy, they were buying bonds through March and April, and then they essentially stopped from May through August. And then once Victoria went down into lockdown again, they started buying. So over the past month, they've actually bought $10 billion worth of bonds after doing nothing for 90 days. So to me, the timing of Victoria entering lockdown, the RBA having to reassess their forecasts lower because obviously unemployment is going to end up higher because of that, coupled with the idea that they've said, you know what, you know, we we could do another bond buying program if we needed to. I think all of that does say they are trying to shift the narrative, but today's statement says they're not ready to do it now. I just fail to sort of still again understand what what their thinking is at the moment. You know, we we were in a situation where um, yeah, things look better, but they're still not good. Um, you've still got you know four percent of uh, bank mortgage books not paying their uh, bills. You've got. Victoria is still in lockdown. Unemployment there has increased. They're telling us that rates and, and unemployment are not likely to improve for, for several years. And yet, you know, when we've seen in the past when unemployment was considerably lower, they've been far more willing to act and, and to do things. And, you know, as much as there is fiscal stimulus um, coming out there as an alternative to it, really just doesn't seem to be enough if you judge it by other countries' standards. Yeah, and so to, to put that, I guess, into a little bit of perspective, the RBA's recent statement of monetary policy said that they've done about 10% of purchases in terms of GDP and other countries, whether it's Europe, New Zealand, US, they've actually said that they're going to be doing about 30%. So the response from offshore looks about three times larger than the RBA. And that is why I think eventually they'll lead to doing more. But that probably, I guess, leads into the next idea of is the reason that they're being so reluctant to do anything simply because they're out of runway? So the RBA keeps telling us that they don't think that they're going to need to use negative rates. Given that a large part of the developed world, you know, whether it's Europe, whether it's Japan, we're starting to see New Zealand and UK hint that they could use negative interest rates. Why do you think the RBA is telling us that it's not going to work when half of the developed world is obviously trying it? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. And to me, it, it comes down to one single thing is that our payment systems are not set up to handle negative interest rates. I, I think New Zealand as well um, came to that conclusion pretty quick. They talked about negative rates, but they pulled back from doing it because they don't think the banking system can handle it. My feeling is that they're more likely to do QE, more QE further out along the curve, which could potentially push bond yields negative. But I think for the RBA to cash to take cash rates negative is going to create a lot of difficulties within the um the financial system because our, our systems and processes aren't really set up for it. 
If you've been sort of following along with some of the Royal Commission into banking and just some of the general talk about banking sector, you know, their systems are not particularly modern by any standards. And there's probably a lot of things that haven't been tested in terms of negative interest rates. Whilst it's easy to handle negative yields, having negative coupons is a completely different thing. As the borrower, you're effectively receiving interest from the lender, which is completely opposite to the way most payment systems work. I I kind of have a a slightly different view. I think that's partly the reason, but I think there's a few other things going on here as well. So I'll come back to the banking system in a second. The reason that I think that really seems to be slowing them down and not just the RBA, but some other countries as well, is that it feels to me as if there's a split between kind of the good and the bad countries. So if you look at negative rates, it's been Japan and Europe, and they're generally seen as kind of the slower growing problematic developed countries. And in fact, late last year, the RBA actually did a speech where they referred to negative rates and they said, we are not in the same situation that has been faced in Europe and Japan. Our growth prospects are stronger. Our banking system is in much better shape. Our demographic profile is better. And we have not had a period of deflation. So they actually kind of pointed that out as, you know, those countries are far worse than us. So I think part of this is just an an acceptance or an unacceptance to say that we could be potentially in a really bad spot here. But the second thing to come back to that banking system is it kind of annoys me when that argument is used because we've seen negative rates used across the world now for about five years. And, you know, to take no action in thinking about whether or not it's coming to me is is a little bit odd for a world that has just had lower and lower rates coming since I've been in the market. But the other argument that you generally hear with the banking system is that it hurts their profitability because of net interest margin. So thinking there is that the banks on one side won't be able to pass the lower rates to to their deposit holders. So because it's negative, they're not going to be able to pass that on to their deposits. But on the other side, their lending books are going to have lower and lower rates and that hurts their net interest margin. Now, in normal times, that argument makes good sense. But when 7 to 10% of your loan book isn't repaying, you really need to ask the question of, would you prefer to have lower net interest margins or some of these borrowers not repaying if they could repay at a lower rate? So I don't think the argument is quite as clear cut as the RBA would kind of have you believe. And the real thing to me is there seems to be something holding them back. But just like QE, they told us it wasn't coming. At some stage, it seems like they're going to have to think harder about it. Yeah. I mean, to me, you can achieve similar sort of outcomes using quantitative easing rather than negative rates. And, you know, procedurally, it's a, it's a simpler method. You know, everyone's set up to buy and sell bonds more so than they are set up to, to handle negative interest rates. I, I don't disagree Theoretically, it's possible. I just think the RBA is going to be very reluctant to go there without some other catalyst kicking in. And as you say, um, you know that would probably be a hit to the banking system along the way, somewhere along the lines, or, or some other shock to the system that they just can't react to any other way. Yeah, and I guess to kind of carry on with that idea of what we've seen today, them extending this term funding facility, so lending to the banks at 0.25% for three years. Maybe that is part of the strategy of having to avoid that because if they keep funding the bank cheap enough, perhaps they can just kind of carry on and we don't have to uh, acknowledge that there's a bigger issue sitting there. Yeah, I mean, you know, with the banks are getting quarter of a percent funding. Yes, we we got some cut in our mortgage rates, but I certainly haven't got the same sort of uh, cut in mortgage rates that the banks just got. So they're, they're not having to pass it on. So there's got to be at least some, some element of um, profitability can't be their argument um, for for mortgage rates at the moment. But anyway, we'll see what happens. I guess the the other big thing that's changed 
over the past few weeks and whether or not you'd regard this as a big thing, maybe or may not be depending on how much you look at rates markets, but is the Federal Reserve changed how they're going to be using their inflation target. So rather than using 2% inflation as a ceiling, they're going to be targeting an average rate of 2% for inflation, which should mean that they let it run above 2% once it's been below for some time. So given that the change that they've made, does this actually mean anything for rates markets? Another interesting one where the RBA is probably sitting there thinking, you know, we've been doing that for uh, 10 years or more. You know, in theory, it made sense to do it 10 years ago. Now, when they've been all missing their inflation targets for at least the last five years and and in some cases even longer, does average inflation at 2% mean anything more than a ceiling at 2% when you can't get inflation at that level? Now, that's my question is, you know, does it really matter? Yeah, it's a, it's a great concept saying, yep, we'll, we'll run inflation higher than we need to to compensate for periods where inflation undershoots the target. But if you can't hit that target in the first place, and it's something we've questioned you know, quite a lot over the last couple of years is, you know, that whole inflation targeting model just seems wrong for the current environment. I would kind of echo that idea. One of the, the big things that I think when you're looking at this change, which obviously rate markets sold off on thinking that it would be inflationary. From kind of the first glance, it does kind of mean that interest rates will be lower for longer because they used to kind of tighten when inflation reached 2%. Now they should let it go a little bit higher. So that in theory should let it run a little bit longer. But also, as you kind of point out, if the next 10 years look even remotely like the past 10 years for inflation, then they really have kind of Buckley's of, of hitting that average level anyway. So whether it's the US, Australia, UK, Europe, none of these countries have been able to achieve above consistently above 2% inflation. And if you go and read the ECB's commentary over the past five years, it's just a comedy of errors in terms of forecasting above 2% inflation. So to me, a lot of this says it's a nice change, but it probably doesn't mean too much. I think though there was something also kind of hidden in the details, which hasn't been picked apart yet by the market, which is how they described their unemployment use for inflation. So one of the kind of key tenets of central banking, in my opinion, is the Phillips curve. And so what the Phillips curve is, is that there is a trade-off between unemployment and inflation. So if we push unemployment too low, then wages will start rising because people will be competing for jobs. And then those rise in wages will lead to inflation breaking out. And so historically what the Fed, the RBA and all the central banks have done is that once unemployment got too low, they started hiking interest rates. Now, for for those of you who actually went and read the statement from Powell, this comment was, was sitting in there. So what he said was, in earlier decades when the Phillips curve was steeper, inflation tended to rise noticeably in response to the strengthening labour market. It was sometimes appropriate for the Fed to tighten monetary policies as employment rose in order to stave off an unwelcome rise in inflation. But what they've changed that to now is to say the change to shortfalls, which is the change in their language, clarifies that going forward, employment can run at or above real-time estimates of its maximum level without causing concern. So essentially, the Fed has just told us they're not going to be using unemployment anymore to target inflation. They're going to just watch inflation and start hiking rates when it actually rises. So not only are they going to be targeting average inflation, they're also not going to overreact when unemployment falls to four, three, whatever percent that it can drop down to, because they're saying that it doesn't work that way anymore. And so I actually think that's the bigger change from their statement, because unemployment hasn't been a good forecast for inflation over the past 10 years. 
Yep, completely agree with you. And you have to admire the market's optimism to um, think just because the Fed decides to change its target that suddenly it's going to become more achievable than it was previously, even though they've done nothing else but change a few words. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a much smarter way of doing things. But the reality is that it's probably going to be some five to ten years before they get to test the theory because you know, if you look at most central bank statements at the moment, they're talking about, certainly the RBA is talking about inflation averaging sort of one to one and a quarter percent for the next couple of years. The Fed's talking about not having to move interest rates for at least five years, which is implicit in that, saying that inflation is not likely to go any higher. It's a great idea. It's probably five years too late. And, um, you know, it's probably going to be some time before we actually get to see it tested. I think that's the best way to describe it. I look at some of these things and I kind of think, you know, that's a fantastic argument to to make when interest rates are ready to rise in 2027 or whatever year you you kind of expect inflation and unemployment to actually show their head again. Um, but at least they seem to be thinking about it, which is probably one of the steps that we've been arguing for quite a while now that they should be thinking about it. And from a rates perspective, I think it tells us that for the foreseeable future, you know, whether that's two, three years, just like the RBA has now told us that they don't expect rates to rise, the Fed is now essentially making that exact same statement that we're going to be in a period of easy rates for a very long time. Yeah, I, I guess the thing that sits in the back of my mind is the fact that, you know, we we had this period of uh, monetary economics from the 1970s, which has been sort of the, the catch cry for, for most um, policy for the last 30 to 40 odd years. You know, are we just going to end up in a period where central banks fit their policy to suit what's happening rather than actually thinking about why it's happening? That, that would be my, my one tenant is to see whether they're just being reactionary rather than actually thinking about what's actually driving some of these things. Because, you know, this, this admittance that inflation perhaps is not as big a problem as what they've believed it to have been for some time is sort of admittance that perhaps that 1970s phenomenon was the outlier, not the norm, whereas they've really treated that as the norm for some time. And I think the best way to describe that is they're just fighting, you know, last year's or last 40 decades ago type thing, that the boogeyman that was, was seen then rather than the situation that we're in now where it's going to be far harder to generate it. That's a really good place to stop. Um, we actually had a question um from the last podcast on inflation. So we thought we'd maybe uh, take some time to, to try and answer that particular question. It was more around given an outbreak in inflation, you know, what would that do to bond markets? And then how could somebody respond to managing that phenomenon happening? Now, the first thing I would say is that we, as we've sort of alluded to, don't really think there's going to be a breakout in inflation anytime soon. That's one of the um, things that can affect bond markets. Theoretically, interest rates do reflect what the expectation for inflation is. So that's already built into the rate structure, at least theoretically. So realistically, what interest rates are telling you is that they think inflation is going to be low for some time. The risk is that if you're wrong, what happens if inflation does break out? And, and there are instruments in the market that you can use to protect against that. They're called index-linked bonds, and, and generally that's the main tool that um, people use to, to protect against inflation. But I guess the, the, main, the main effect 
from an outbreak in inflation, as we, we've alluded to, is that rates will generally go higher. Or, although, again, given the change to some of the central bank thinking, that may not be as fast as what's happened in the past. So, yeah, definitely there, there's ways to, to, to manage it, but, but that is one of the things that can be problematic for bond markets. So the one thing that I just wanted to, to come back to on that point and just kind of further flesh out some of the things that we're thinking is just on the why we don't think inflation is going to rise in the near term. So there's kind of a number of factors, I think, weighing against this. So at the moment, housing, uh, rents are falling, housing prices are falling. If you look at the consumption basket, which is how inflation is calculated, uh, housing makes up about a quarter of that basket. So a quarter of the inflation basket from housing is weak. And as long as it remains weak, it's hard to really see how inflation is going to spike higher. The other kind of two points that you would look at for this is the rising Australian dollar that we mentioned before, that's going to make offshore goods cheaper. And that means over the kind of coming six to 12 months, any of the imports that we have coming from offshore, those goods are going to be cheaper. And then the last thing is just the slack that's sitting in the labor market. So while there's huge unemployment, wages won't really be moving. And because wages will be stuck, there won't be much kind of demand pressure for goods. And that generally weighs on prices as well. So those three things, I think, tell you that at least in the near term, it's hard to see where inflation is going to come from. That's not to say that it can't just pop out of nowhere, but when you kind of forecast these things, those factors tell you that it's probably going to be muted for at least the near term. So yeah, there are definitely instruments available in the market, um, both the um, inflation-linked bonds and uh, swap market, uh, which can be used for managing inflation. Well, that's it for this month. Don't forget to reach out to us if you have any questions you'd like us to answer on air. To get in touch, you can email us at theratedebate at nicoam.com. Chris has also recently written a paper on Australian housing prices that proved to be incredibly popular. You can find this paper along with all of our latest insights on our website at nicoam.com.au. Tune in next month when we deliver our latest thoughts on the RBA's October rate decision and provide an update on what's been happening in the markets. Until then, stay safe. This podcast was prepared by Nico AM Limited, ABN 9900337625256252, AFSL number 237563. It is of a general nature only and does not constitute personal advice or an offer of any financial product. It does not take into account the objectives of financial situation or needs of any individual. Any references to particular securities or sectors are for illustrative purposes only and this is not a recommendation. Any economic or market forecasts are not guaranteed.